My name is Carol Dempsey and I'm joined today by Scott Olson, one of the partners in our US practice who leads our compensation practice. I just want to talk a little bit about the context of the UK before we move on to Scott, who talked to us about changes in the US. On the 23rd of January, the Department for Business Innovation and Skills announced proposals on executive pay, which have been the most radical we've seen since the introduction of regulations on executive reporting back in 2002. Uh, there's still an awful lot of uncertainty around the detail of the proposals, but the focus is mainly on increasing transparency through mandating additional disclosures and in the remuneration report and on giving shareholders some form of a binding vote on pay, which will be very interesting. The US has also gone through a significant amount of regulatory and governance changes over the past few years, most notably now the say on pay in the US. Um, today we're going to discuss those changes and how the US has changed the executive pay environment, look at the market and maybe look at some of the comparisons between the UK and the US. Scott, do you want to give us a, a bit of background as to what's going on? There are increasing similarities between mm -hmm. the two markets, Carol, and I think executive compensation has been a lightning rod issue mm -hmm. around governance for a long time in the U.S. and in the U.K. We manifest it sometimes differently in terms of regulation or public sentiment, mm -hmm. but the bottom line is it's a side of corporate governance that's very visible to investors and therefore mm -hmm. ones that people take quite a bit of interest in. You mentioned regulation, and I think right now we have had in the past year a bit more of a quiet year mm -hmm. in the US. We had very significant changes in our disclosure rules in 2009 and with the passage of the Dodd-Frank Act which was a, a pretty highly publicized um, act around financial services reform there was also quite a bit of corporate governance reform that impacts all listed companies in the US. You mentioned say on pay. Say on pay was the first aspect of Dodd-Frank that was implemented and we went through our first year last year of say on pay. Um, and there are a number of pending regulations related to Dodd-Frank that still haven't been finalized. So we're dealing with quite a bit of uncertainty around those. And um, you know, companies getting some pressure from investors to begin moving on those things but not wanting to do that ahead of having final regulations and the likes. I think we're at a point in time where there's a, a fair bit of um, you know, certainly a lot of public attention given to executive mm -hmm. pay. It's something you can't pick up the paper without seeing, particularly at this time of the year as we move into our annual meeting and proxy season. And um, it's one in which the number of constituents that have a point of view on it is getting more and more complex. In fact, what we're seeing is some cases the things the regulators are talking about aren't necessarily the same issues that investors are concerned about. So I do think it puts our clients and, and companies into a much more difficult position of how to navigate these various stakeholders. Scott, you mentioned Dodd-Frank and when we hear an awful lot about Dodd-Frank. Would you be able maybe just to tell us what it applies to and where, where the, the main issues are that arise out of Dodd-Frank? That's a great question and, and interestingly there are some aspects of Dodd-Frank that as I said really impact all US listed companies. Yeah. And there are a couple aspects of it that are specific to financial services companies. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that bigger universe okay. first because I think it's a bit more universal. The first one we mentioned is say on pay. And say yeah. on pay has really taken three forms in the U.S. The first is the shareholder vote, which is an advisory vote, not a binding vote, on the um, compensation discussion and analysis mm -hmm. and all of the tabular disclosures that are required by the SEC. Um, very, very extensive disclosure. I think the, at last count, 
um, the average company's executive compensation portion of their proxy statements probably 35 to 40 pages long. So that gives you some it's a sense. Disproportionate. Yeah, about what's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, the second part of say on pay was the frequency, mm-hmm. and shareholders had the opportunity to vote on whether or not they wanted to have an annual say on pay mm-hmm. vote, one that was a- occurring every two years or every three years. Overwhelmingly, shareholders voiced an, an opinion of wanting to have that vote every year. So mm-hmm. most companies have now adopted an annual One say year. on pay mm-hmm. vote. The third aspect of say on pay is one that doesn't happen all the time, but happens when a company is going through a major transaction. Mm-hmm. And that is that now shareholders have the opportunity to vote on, again on an advisory basis, the amount of um, change in control related compensation that's owed to the executive team. So a company that is going through a sale to another company would have a separate say on pay vote on those arrangements, both in terms of the structure and the total dollar amounts of what the executive team would be getting as a result of that transaction. Mm -hmm. So that's one big part of Dodd-Frank. The other things, which as I mentioned are in process, is some changes in rules on compensation committee independence. Um, which are right now with the listing exchanges in the U.S. It's a fairly Byzantine rulemaking structure. Um, There were some rules about disclosure of a CEO pay ratio, the ratio of CEO pay to the um, median pay, or I guess what I should say is the pay of the median employee within those companies. Um, There is supplemental disclosure on pay for performance, which is still pending, and there's also... um, requirements related to clawback provisions of compensation, which is still pending with the SEC. And finally, some disclosure of what kind of policies companies have on um, hedging that executives might do with their shareholdings. So that kind of runs the gamut of the things that impact all companies. And we can come back to those a little bit because some of them are more controversial than others. As far as financial services companies go, this is a place where the U.S. is probably a little bit behind the U.K. and and continental Europe in terms of regulation, but the Dodd-Frank regulations on pay for financial services companies, primarily banking institutions, broker-dealers, and investment advisors, we're not into the insurance industry on that at this point because they're not regulated Mm -hmm. by our, our federal regulators, um, is around prohibition of compensation that is rewarded to companies that might be taking excessive risk and prohibitions on excessive compensation on a risk basis. So they're very much in line with the the G20 regulations that were put out by Mm -hmm. the Financial Stability Board and with local regulations, whether it's the FSA in the UK or or other regulators. So they're very much in line with Mm -hmm. those. Certain rules around deferrals and, and again, a lot around disclosure and, Mm -hmm. and process. So it's along the same lines as we're seeing really throughout the UK and Europe. That's right. I mean, again, some local differences, but from a principles point of view, very Mm -hmm. similar. And for the first time in Dodd-Frank, there is a bit of prescription for our largest financial mm-hmm. financial institutions, not for everybody. And one of the differences between a lot of your prescription with the financial institutions is that it's sometimes only the, the banks or financial institutions who've received assistance. Is that still the case? Well, yeah, th- that kind of takes us back under what we call TARP, mm-hmm. or the Troubled Asset Relief Program. There were a number of specific stipulations that were put into place for organizations that had re- received mm-hmm. federal aid. 
Um, most of the organizations are out of that at this point. Right. And those were regulations that only lived on as long as the government okay. had an investment. So we're kind of seeing that sunsetting at this so, point. So, so it's kind of parked. It now mm-hmm. goes from an, an interesting point we're hearing here that because of the fact we're so regulated in the UK compared to, say, the US, which is slightly less regulated, or even Asia, who's cons- Asia yes. where they're considerably less regulated, that there is a risk it will make us less competitive for staff and talent. Do you see anything in the US that maybe U.S. banks are, are managing to realise or realising that potentially they, they, that they, they have an opportunity there? Or is that something we're worrying about unnecessarily? I think at the most senior levels of organisations, these are, these are for the most part global issues. Yeah. Um, and, and lower down into organizations, once you get away from the major risk takers and the sort of okay. senior executive level, I, I don't think the impact is yeah. that great. Having said that, the one area that, that appears to be more of a hot-button issue mm-hmm. in the UK than it's been in the US is around guarantees issued mm-hmm. to those that are joining a new organization. Yeah. Um, so I think there may be a short-term mm-hmm. bit of arbitrage there, but my sense mm-hmm. is that won't last terribly yeah, long. And I think whether, although it's not as specified in the US, that whole idea of guarantees is mm-hmm. certainly mm-hmm. less favorable than it yeah. was in, uh, previously. So it's quite interesting listening to your long list of, of things that you're looking at because so many of them are things that are on the table here in yes. the UK. I mean, for example, the pay ratio was something that was on the cards last year, but then when Biz issued their report, they'd moved away from it because of the complexities. Um, but it's something that's still pending in the US. Yeah, we, we're hoping to, to have a similar outcome. Um, th- this is a... As far as the regulations that are out there, this is the one that appears to have perhaps the least potential impact Mm -hmm. from an investor perspective, but has the most administrative trouble from a company's point of Mm -hmm. view. And there is some legislation in our, of course, we have a a sort of difficult legislative process, but but there is some um, activity in the U.S. House of Representatives to actually repeal that part of Mm -hmm. Dodd-Frank. And the problem with it is the definition of pay the ability to track workers on a global basis, you know, who is the median employee. There's many unanswered questions, mm-hmm. and it would be, I think, what's been pointed out by, um, by a number of folks is that the cost-benefit of this rule yeah. just doesn't really get there. Yeah. And the way the law was written, the SEC has very little wiggle room to actually in- put a rule into place that would be mm-hmm. um, administratively reasonable mm-hmm. to do. So that's one where we'll see where it goes. Yeah. I think on the pay for performance, again, there's some questions on what are the right metrics, what's mm-hmm. the right time period. There are some details around it, but we do expect that to move forward. Mm-hmm. As far as the clawback go. We've actually had clawback legislation now for almost 10 years after Sarbanes-Oxley. What Dodd-Frank does is it exposes a larger group of executives Mm -hmm. to potential clawback. It has a longer look-back period, three years instead of one year. And it it also would require clawbacks in any case of misstatement, whether or not there Mm -hmm. was management fraud or not. So it's actually quite a bit stronger. Mm -hmm. And again, we're waiting for a bit of clarification Mm -hmm. on how that would actually be implemented. It will also apply to stock awards, which sometimes are not a focus Mm -hmm. of performance conditions. And on the clawback, is that that something that applies to all companies, or is there a... Is, is there a division? It doesn't apply to everything or all companies? It all would apply to all, companies? again, yeah. it would apply to all listed companies mm-hmm. at this yeah, point. Yeah, because it's, it's interesting. That's something that a lot of UK companies are mm-hmm. struggling with because obviously the FS community have had it for a while mm-hmm. and other, other companies are deciding how to put it in place and what can you actually claw back? Can you claw back something, something that people have spent or is it just claw backing on, on vested awards? Right. So it's, it's well, going to be an interesting a, There's discussion. a practicality issue there too yeah. because... 
for global companies, um, mm -hmm. the ability to claw back in, in various yeah. territories may be very different. Even in the United States, the rules that would allow you to claw back may be different from state yeah. to state. So it's, it's one that makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense at a high level, but yeah. in terms of implementing it, there's some real, real potential issues there. And then for global companies, they've got to deal with all of the tax issues, with the different right. tax treatment of clawback. But just, just you mentioned investors um, and the new powers investors have got and shareholders have. How are they enjoying their new powers? What are, what, how are they using them? Well, there's a couple things on that, Carol. I think, um, first of all, investors have always had the ability to voice an opinion on executive pay. And in the U.S. market, the way things work, they've had it in two ways. Mm -hmm. um, one is, periodically, most U.S. companies go back to shareholders for new, they, to, to request new yeah. shares for equity plans. Um, those have to be approved by shareholders. They have to be granted under a shareholder-approved plan. So every three or four years, they've had that opportunity to vote on a binding basis on whether mm -hmm. or not to approve the new equity yeah. incentive plan. The second thing is they've always had the power to withhold votes from compensation committee members, and that was the way that many shareholders exercised their point of view on executive comp in the past. But say on pay, which was not necessarily you know, demanded by shareholders. In fact, for many years we had proposals for mm -hmm. say on pay votes that didn't pass. But now that it's there, I think what we've seen is shareholders have used it to accelerate the pace of change on issues that they feel are important related mm -hmm. to executive pay. A couple of those things. One is, um, again, going back to our change in control compensation. There's some particular provisions around amounts payable to executives on a change in control that um, investors have voiced an opinion on, something we call tax gross-ups. Um, we saw some real examples last year of companies pulling back on tax gross-ups mm -hmm. where they probably would have waited until they put a new equity plan in place, yeah. for instance, to do that. Um, the other one is performance conditions. That's been an issue where the U.S. practice has lagged the U.K. in terms of performance conditions on equity grants. And we saw, again, companies actually changing existing awards to put performance conditions yeah. on them in order to get a better say on mm -hmm. pay vote. Um, having said all that, we had what we consider to be a pretty good pass rate on say on pay. Um, over 98% of companies got a mm -hmm. positive say on pay vote, but that did mean that over 40 companies actually didn't, didn't pass. Yeah. And my understanding is in the UK, you've had this in place for probably eight or nine years. You probably haven't had 40 companies no, over that period no, of time. No, nowhere near that at all. So it's, it does seem, but then I suppose it's been in place for a lot of, a number of years, but the executive compensation has probably not been top of the agenda for all mm -hmm. of those years. Mm -hmm. um, and as you probably know, that we, we're having or potentially going to have a change in say on pay in that we're going to have a, a retrospective vote and a prospective vote. Right. But uh, it's, it's all under discussion now too. Yeah. So that will be very interesting. Yeah. And we're very anxious to see what happens in year yeah. two because, um, you know, I think a lot of investors and importantly some of the investor advisors that work with them mm -hmm. really use the first year to kind of take the pulse mm -hmm. and try and understand where things were. In terms of how they evaluate the proposals going mm -hmm. forward, that will be interesting. And secondly, U.S. companies are required to put into their proxy statement how their compensation yeah. committees, our version of your REMCOs, mm -hmm. um, actually responded to the say on mm -hmm. pay vote and whether or not it impacted any yeah. decisions they took in the most recent year. So that's very interesting. So are you seeing any new trends based on that, or is it too early to tell? Well, as I said, I think um, the clear emphasis is on figuring out how to strengthen the relationship on pay for performance, 
and how to tell the story on pay for performance to make sure that investors understand what companies mm -hmm. are doing. Some cases that's resulted in some changes in approach, mm -hmm. um, but we try to bake it down into whether are companies really changing their philosophy or are they just changing tactics. Right mm -hmm. now, I think for most people, it's more of a tactical mm -hmm. change than a philosophical change. Okay. So it's kind of watch this space at this mm -hmm. stage in that area. Can we go back to performance conditions? Yes. Because we've had a situation for years where we've had UK executives, maybe a company that has a US division or recruits an executive from the US, and we've had performance conditions and we've had a number of US executives or companies saying, look, this doesn't work, we can't recruit. So now that performance conditions are becoming more common, how, how far down into the organisation do they go? What type of awards? Because I, I remember a few years ago there was a differential. If it was options, you still weren't talking about performance conditions. Is it just now free share awards, RSU-type awards? Well, if you think about the evolution of equity incentives over the past six or mm -hmm. seven years, if we looked back, and primarily before the change in accounting mm -hmm. rules in 2005, the predominant vehicle for equity was options. Mm -hmm. and, and you're right, we rarely had performance conditions. Um, once the accounting rules changed and with an emphasis on um, retention and slowdown in the share price market, mm -hmm. we've seen a movement towards full value shares, restricted stock, restricted stock units, etc. And right off the bat, there was pressure when introducing those vehicles mm -hmm. to put performance conditions yeah. on them. Where we are right now is it's still relatively rare for a share option or an SAR mm -hmm. to have a performance condition, but it's far more common for a restricted stock unit to have them. And typically, that has been limited to what U.S. companies would call executive officers. Those are folks that are either in running, running significant business units or at the sort of policy level, um, what you might call a U.K. board level, yeah. and maybe the level below that. Um, some organizations will take it another, another level down, mm -hmm. but there may be a large population who receive LTI grants that do not have performance conditions. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the question is kind of where you have that cutoff. Mm -hmm. So it really is it very much at the upper echelon still of the organization. Generally speaking. Yeah. And it's, it's a genuine trend. It's not just one or two companies doing it. It's happening right across the board now that as companies introduce new plans, you are seeing performance conditions. Well, again... Pretty much anywhere you see a restricted share, a restricted yeah. stock unit grant, you're going to see performance conditions at mm -hmm. the top of the house. Um, what a lot of companies are doing, though, is they're making sure that we don't lose the forest for the trees on this. If yeah. you've got a company that's got a highly leveraged annual mm -hmm. plan that may defer a part of its annual award, it may still be mm -hmm. reasonable uh, from a pay-for-performance mm -hmm. perspective to use a time-based yeah. restricted share or stock option scheme. Mm -hmm. It really should be looked at in totality mm -hmm. rather than vehicle by vehicle. And I think that's one of the problems people have with, say, on pay, is that it becomes a check the box. And yeah. if it's, hey, we don't have performance conditions, people aren't looking at that totality. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, that's one of the things that we've been advocating for years, that whatever is put in place for the company should be should focus on that company's own objectives rather than really just being, we need a performance condition, let's take it off the shelf. So I think you coming into the game slightly late means you've, pro you've probably got the advantage that you can you can take all the learning. Well, and, and with many things, you can have a performance condition and the way they're calibrated yeah. can make a big difference. Um, you know, to use a, 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 a metaphor here, it's kind of, does your performance condition an on-off switch? Is it either mm -hmm. everything or nothing? Yeah. Or is it a rheostat? Does it allow you to adjust the amount vested up and down, but within reasonable limits? Mm -hmm. I think one of the observations we've had looking at what's gone on in the UK is, you know, these conditions have not just been 
performance conditions, yeah. but they've been a little bit more of the all-or-nothing variety, which can, in many cases can exacerbate mm -hmm. some of the yeah. problems that exist. Scott, I'm conscious of time, and there's probably one or two other things we should probably just cover quickly. I think just in terms of overall pay levels, are we seeing them going up, down, uh, move from fixed to variable, variable to fixed? What are you seeing? Well, the U.S. has always had a more leveraged package yeah. than the U.K. There's some reasons in our tax code for that, particularly mm -hmm. limitations on tax deductibility of fixed pay mm -hmm. for senior executives. Um, what I would say in terms of pay levels, though, is things have um, stabilized a little bit. We've actually seen years in which the median pay for the U.S. CEO of you know, or mm -hmm. Fortune 500 or whatever group you want to look at has gone down yeah. um, and has probably stabilized. One of the reasons for that is a clear sense of volatility on annual bonuses mm -hmm. and a very strong um, kind of watchdog, if you will, on long-term incentive okay. grants. So the cynic would say, hey, in other years when bonuses went down, long-term incentive grants went up. Bonuses are still very volatile and, and mirroring performance, but the equity grants have remained relatively okay. stable in good times and bad. So I, I would say it's, it's stable from a grant basis. Mm -hmm. I will also say, though, that we saw a lot of people getting stock at pretty low prices mm -hmm. over the past four or five years. So if the market recovers and the yeah. economy recovers, we it's could be pay, seeing pay significant yeah. increases in realized pay over mm -hmm. the next five or six years. Maybe we should say when the market recovers. Yes. it's <laughs> probably Let's the way so. to go. Okay, so just, just one last comment. So, so, Scott, we've spoken about a lot of the issues. We've spoken about the difference between the U.K. and the, the U.S. Where, where do you see things going over the next maybe three to five years? Well, you know, I, th I don't think this is ever going to diminish mm -hmm. um, in terms of the amount of uh, press scrutiny, public scrutiny, and to a certain extent government mm -hmm. scrutiny. I think we're kind of there to stay. I do think, however, that um, as companies continue to navigate this increasingly confusing stakeholder market, we will see companies go back to say, what do we need to do for our company? Mm -hmm. Um, let's not adopt a me-too approach, but let's make sure we do a good job of telling our story so that those that are reading our proxies and voting on our plans mm -hmm. are voting on them based on full disclosure okay. and, and understanding. And I think we're entering a new um, environment of transparency mm -hmm. in that regard. And yeah. if, you, if you can tell your story right and if it's a good story to tell, it shouldn't matter whether you've checked off every box that everyone's given you. Sounds good. So a new, new environment of transparency and perhaps global convergence. Yeah, it looks looking like that, isn't okay. it? Okay. Well, thank you very much, Scott. That was very interesting. I hope you found this useful. Our just quick review of what's happening in the UK and the US. Thank you very much.